All right, folks, welcome to the Drop Zone. It is Tuesday evening in Seattle, and uh, Dylan DeChair here. And on the phone line, I have Josh Sens, who was at the courtroom today. Sean Zock and I are going to to prattle on about Liv and the whole thing, but since Josh was there in person, I just wanted to get a few minutes with him off the top. Um, Josh, what was it like at the courtroom today? Was was it as uh, exciting as it seemed on the internet? Uh, the internet has a way of distorting things. The the federal courthouse in downtown San Jose is sort of a nondescript building, and inside it very much felt like you could have been in any old office building anywhere. Um, it was quiet, lots of lawyers, lots of people in suits, and a judge who was very well prepared, uh, reasonably well attended. They had set aside a spillover room for media, but it wasn't so well attended that they had to use that. There are about 15 to 20 of us in the benches behind the action. What What would you say your expectations were going in? Because I know you'd talked to a bunch of uh, antitrust lawyers and, and general experts um, on this case. Yeah, I had. And my expectations based on my conversations with those antitrust experts was that the TRO would be shot down and would be shot down fairly quickly. When I got to the courthouse and was talking to some other reporters and producers uh, lurking around, I quickly realized that the sentiment was somewhat different, that a lot of people assumed that the players (laughs) would be granted the TRO and that they'd be playing in the FedEx Cup. So as the hearing wore on, the judge who had, as I said, you know, she'd spent the weekend reading up all on her papers, was very well prepared and did and played things very close to the vest, had a lot of questions for both sides of the bench, both counsels. And uh, it wasn't really clear till the very end which way she was going to lean. Yeah. So uh, what what were some of the arguments for either side? Like what seemed to be the things that she was focusing on or zeroing in on from each argument? Right. Well, for a a temporary restraining order to be granted, you have to meet a fairly high legal standard. For for starters, you need to show that you have the likelihood of winning the case on its merits in the long run. You also have to show that it's in the public interest that the TRO be granted. And in this case, the biggest biggest hurdle that the plaintiffs had to clear, and it turned out to be a decisive one, you have to be able to show immediate and irreparable harm. And in the case of uh, the legal standard here, that irreparable harm can't just be money. And really what the what the judge was trying to get at was what kind of damages, what kind of injuries do these three players, these three plaintiffs face? How serious are they? Is it anything beyond money, which is reparable? And mm, if so, yep. is there any need for me to intercede? Judges are generally, federal judges are generally reluctant to step in in the middle of a case like this. And so that's why the legal bar is high. Got it. So what should be the takeaway going forward? What, if anything, does this have to do with the larger case? Yeah, I mean, that's an important, uh, that's an important question, I think. And I'm not a lawyer myself, but I've sort of educated myself enough to know that and to have been in, been in, the, court, in the courthouse today, the, the deeper antitrust questions, those complicated questions were sort of kicked down the road. I don't think that golf fans at home should see this as a verdict one way or the other, or any kind of you know hand tipping towards where the larger legal case is going to go. This was very specifically focused on this temporary restraining order request, whether these three players were going to get to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs. The judge said, no, you have not shown that you've reached that standard of showing irreparable harm, and so I will not grant you the TRO. But along the course of the hearing, she said, look, and this was not surprising based on the experts I had spoken to beforehand, 
She said, look, you guys, each side has pretty reasonable arguments in this antitrust case. Let's take this to discovery. Let's take this to trial and see where it goes. So do you have any sense in the timeline of, of that? Because, I mean, look, we're already famously talking about a few aging golfers when it comes to live. You know, you got Phil Mickelson is, is not getting any younger. A few of their other guys are on the back nine of their career, certainly. How long is this thing going to drag out before they could potentially play on the PGA Tour again? Yeah, well, antitrust cases, you may have read, have a tendency to drag on for years and years and years. The judge in this case, Judge Freeman, said that she has time on her schedule next fall, in the fall of 2023, to get this trial underway, assuming that both sides are ready. Uh, according to the antitrust experts I, I've talked to, it's sort of in the plaintiff's interest and in the interest of the live golfers to get this case in front of a judge as quickly as possible. On the other hand, the tour would not uh, be disappointed if this were to drag on and on and on. And so, you know, whether the tour has the legal right to, to stonewall and drag its feet is another question not for me to answer. Um, but they would be perfectly happy if it, it did not go to trial anytime soon. And then finally, Josh, were there any uh, little tidbits that stuck out to you that aren't necessarily super significant in the ultimate verdict, but just hit you as, wow, that's a really interesting detail. Yeah, there were a number of details and, you know, whether they'll come into play in the in the longer case is hard to say. But um, one that got batted about quite a bit on Twitter was uh, one of the plaintiff's attorneys said during the course of this that, that in some live contracts, any players, any money the players earned is recouped against the advances they were given. This was something that Brandel Chambly had floated a while back and Liv had denied it. But um, it appears based on what the attorney said that some contracts indeed for these live players do call for that, which is an interesting point. Yeah, the live spokesman kind of shot that down afterwards, said the words were taken out of context or something was misunderstood. But there's these contracts are all different. So I, I think that that's definitely still a real possibility given what was said under oath. But yeah, keep going, Josh. Yeah, that's sure to be a source of speculation and commentary by, by plenty of people along the road. Also, the judge was very interested in... Um, the question of the tour's own regulations, the suspensions that it meted out to these players and how those suspensions were are being enforced. Um, one of the arguments made on the plaintiff's behalf was, was, hey, you know, we were suspended. We got word of the suspension and we filed an appeal with the tour. And the argument was, as long as we filed that appeal, our suspension should be stayed while that appeal gets considered. Uh, the tour's attorney argued, no, that that was not the case. That's not how the the contract and that's not how the tour meted out its penalties. That's not how Monaghan and the tour were flexing its muscles. This gets into a more complicated question, not about antitrust, but about contracts. And at the heart of that question is sort of, does Monaghan, does the commissioner have too much power and is he wielding it fairly? And that will be something surely that will come up in many different ways. So is there then a possibility that these players through a different mechanism would end up playing on the PGA tour before the antitrust case gets settled, or is there no real way for that to happen? That's a good question. And from my understanding, and I should triple fact check it, <laughs> the, the plaintiffs have the option of filing for injunctive relief. There are various forms of relief, various ways they can ask the courts to intercede in this before the final longer leave, you know, antitrust case is settled. That could happen. There are other forms of injunctive relief they could seek. Whether that would be successful or not, I would only be guessing, and I'd have to go back to my experts and ask. My last question for you, Josh, what was the mood like between you know, opposing counsel uh, and, and the judge in charge? Uh, it was quite cordial and professional. In fact, before the uh, hearing got underway, I heard two of uh, the assistant counsel sitting on the 
beside the lead attorneys saying to each other, hey, we worked together 30 years ago, didn't we? Hey, how are your kids doing? It got very sort of familial. Once the hearing got underway, it was all very professional. And at the end, I tried to ask both lead counsels questions, and they both said they had no comment, nothing further to add. The attorney for the plaintiff, Robert Walter, said he had to get to the airport. The attorney for the tour said he'd rather let the record speak for itself. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Josh, thanks for asking the questions. Thanks for being there, doing the actual journalism. Um, <sighs> let's see. To the listeners on the line, just hang tight because Sean Zock, who who watched and listened to the entire thing, and I are going to give a more complete breakdown, get to Cameron Smith's latest, and uh, talk about Muirfield, the, uh, the Women's British Open, and Sean's own adventures. So, Stay tuned, but Josh, thanks for setting the record straight. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Don. Talk to you later. Here's where you have to know how to drop your golf ball. Sure speeds up play when you have those drop areas. Fowler has dropped the ball twice. The Shambo is going to get a free drop. Something bad has happened if we end up here. This is the drop zone. All right, folks, and a happy Tuesday afternoon to you in Seattle. And folks, you know what that means. When it's Tuesday afternoon in Seattle, it is late, late Tuesday uh, in the United Kingdom. Wednesday morning, officially. That's right. We've officially crossed the threshold into Wednesday morning. Sean, I'm currently in a parking lot outside the Boeing Classic in Snoqualmie, (laughs) Washington, um, where the... There, there was not a whole lot going on today. The, uh, the Tuesdays of uh, PGA Tour Champions events are a little bit sleepy. Um, but elsewhere in the golf world, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Of course, in Memphis, they're gearing up for the FedEx Cup playoffs. Cameron Smith was speaking to the media. And across the country in California, what was going on? Well, the temporary restraining order was getting decided. The request for a temporary restraining order by three tour players, Taylor Gooch, Hudson Swafford, Matthew Jones, uh, were arguing to get their way back into the FedEx Cup playoffs because they had actually qualified. They had enough points. They had earned enough points in this PGA Tour season before committing to live golf to play in the FedEx Cup. Um, now granted there are at least nine live golfers who qualified for the FedEx cup, but only those three were taking part and requesting a temporary restraining order. And it was, you want to give it away? You want, yeah, you gotta give it away at the top. It was a fascinating couple of hours. Ultimately the judge ruled a denial of the restraining order. Uh, which mm. means that those guys will not be taking part in the FedEx Cup this week. The field size is 122 and is stuck that way. It will not increase uh, in Memphis. This was a huge deal um, and also a small deal because this was just the beginning, a little niche corner of a lawsuit that is a much bigger lawsuit with 11 uh, plaintiffs, one of them being Phil Mickelson. Which was it, I guess? Was this a big deal or or a small deal? I think it was a big deal because it's essentially it it has established a couple precedents. Like this is just an order from a judge that says no, not we're not rushing this thing. This this implied emergency that you three golfers have brought forth, we're not we're not going to rush forward with like a gigantic precedent setting thing. And so 
Um, I would say it's a big deal because in the UK here, uh, a small claims court ruled that four European tour players could work their way into the Scottish Open. Um, That happened uh, about a, a little over a month ago. Um, and so that felt like a precedent, but like, does that precedent matter in America? Clearly, uh, not quite. The plaintiffs, the judge said, did not sufficiently argue for irreparable harm. Now, that is one of the major facets of at least the restraining order that was argued by both sides, this being the PGA Tour and the, and the three golfers. Like, Irreparable harm would imply that it because they cannot compete in the FedEx Cup, who knows how much money they could possibly have made and how valuable it could possibly be because if you finish high in the FedEx Cup, you make it to the Tour Championship, well, you get all kinds of things like uh, a berth in the Masters, right? Matt Jones, I don't think, is playing the Masters next year, but if he finishes top 30 in the tour championship he'll have earned a right to play in the masters so things like that would be argued under irreparable harm but the judge basically saw it as since you can figure out what you could you know have reasonably made in the fedex cup it's kind of a bit of a limitation to irreparable harm um and so that was not argued i guess sufficiently for her it was a very entertaining courtroom to watch because uh, Judge Beth Freeman really decided right from the jump she was going to hold guys' feet to the fire, both sides of this case, both attorneys being Rob Walters and Elliot Peters. She started poking holes through various points of evidence on both sides, and it was a, it was a joy uh, to, to, to watch it because there were jokes. There were uh, moments where she seemed like she'd be joking, and then bam, no, I don't agree with that claim at all, and kind of shoved it back in their faces, and like that's not good enough evidence. You're actually arguing against your own point. But it was it was fun to watch for those reasons. All right, I want to dive a little bit more into that. Uh, we'll talk about Cameron Smith's future, uh, what we've learned on the PGA Tour side, and then we will discuss Sean's weekend at the U.S. Women's Open and the U.S. His round at Muirfield. Women's Open so. or just the the Open Championship. The women's, uh, I guess it's still the AIG Women's British Open, despite whatever I just said a minute ago. It is not the Boeing Classic, nor is it the U.S. Women's AM, which is happening down the street at Chambers Bay, which I am attending tomorrow. Um, Sean, do you want to tell our friends listening about some of our other friends? Yeah, well, basically our friends at Radmore, I was alerted that a big, uh, big-time supporter of the drop zone, a guy named Patrick Rogers, wanted to get some gear and he he said how can i support you guys like how can i su- support the drop zone i want to have i want to have dz across my chest i'm like well hey man yeah. honestly you support us by supporting radmore by going to radmoregolf.com mm-hmm. using the code drop zone that's d r o p z o n e i think our listeners know how to spell that'll get you 25% off everything on the website now that is inclusive of already marked off items that's not necessarily great for Radmore. Is that, true? that, that, that like on sale item, items would be still discounted. But yes, if, if there's already discounted items, take another 25% off the top Sheesh. and get yourself some, some really good deals. And uh, as we said, that's radmoregolf.com, R I D M O R G O L F.com. Support us by supporting those guys. 
I was under the impression, Sean, that uh, Patrick Rogers was still under contract with Nike, but we're talking about we're talking about Patrick Rogers as in Claire Rogers' father. Oh, a different different Patrick Rogers. Yeah, Sean. Breaking news: There is a statement that has been released oh, by God. Live Golf. It's oh, one uh, two sentence long. We're disappointed that Taylor Gooch, Hudson Swafford, and Matt Jones won't be allowed to play golf. No one gains by banning golfers from playing. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of wounded participants involved in this whole thing, and I, I would say that, that continues with this, uh, this statement. How did we get to this point, Sean? What was the courtroom experience like today? And uh, I guess let's just start at the beginning. What, what was it like even logging into the proceedings? Uh, well, publicly accessible for one, if you guys listening to this wanted to watch the proceedings, you could have, now it was maxed out at 500, um, participants in the government's, uh, zoom (laughs) in the California state government zoom. But, um, I was in there, I logged in very early because I didn't want to miss out and I knew it could have been capped. I guess we kind of learned like, there's so many pages to documents that are filed and a lot of them matter, but like a lot of them definitely don't matter. And so this was, this was an iteration where, okay, we actually finally get these verbal arguments being made. So the attorney for the live golfers, the plaintiffs started arguing that there is a, uh, a huge disagreement on when these players were actually suspended. And the timeline during which Taylor Gooch, Hutchins Swafford, and Matt Jones found out about potential suspensions, what it means that they were put on probation on June 3rd and June 5th, um, what it meant that Jay Monahan like sent the actual June 9th suspension to them, and that officially they were made uh, suspended on June 30th. And so there's a huge disagreement about that. The judge was basically confused by it as well. There is a few moments where she really wanted some clarity from these guys and they kind of wouldn't. Another of the big issues was the fact that in the PGA Tour bylaws, if a player is dealing with a disciplinary time period and they would like to appeal, generally, if they put in an appeal, they are allowed a stay during the course of that appeal. And so at this point... This is where the timeline gets really fuzzy because they were on probation, but that's not a suspension. Then they played in a live golf event. Suddenly they get suspended. There have been appeals made. And basically what Gooch was arguing is like, hey, if I'm on an appeal, I should be able to play in this event. And so the judge wanted to use the tour regulations essentially against the tour because there was a huge disagreement on what was clear in the actual writing of these regulations. The regulations are think like 75 pages long so (laughs) that's what's taking up a lot of the time and in court space is understanding like the actual rules that the pga tour sets forth trying to think just looking at the, the rest of the notes that i made there was a very interesting moment during a recess before the actual call down in which (laughs) the the plaintiff's defense was discussing amongst themselves and there was a hot mic there their mic was still on and they were discussing some points that they had tried to make while on the record during the the actual proceedings uh, and they mentioned Brandel Chambly and a tweet that he had sent and then they quickly turned off their mic that was a, a very tasty moment if this is boring to you I think that I think that that makes sense 
Like it was exciting to hear the live golfers uh, defense. Yeah. Why was it go why was out it there? Exciting? Well, because they were, they were saying like, Hey, the FedEx cup is the biggest deal in golf. It's bigger. Uh, they didn't mm. say it was bigger than the majors, but they did say it is the equivalent of their super bowl, the equivalent of their NBA finals, yeah. the, the equivalent God, of their was world the funniest series. Part of it all. Like, I mean, a, the fact that, you know, we're comparing the FedEx cup to the super bowl, but also just the fact that these guys are basically incentivized to pump up each other's tires and kind of downplay their own league. So, <laughs> all right. From Liv's perspective, they are incentivized to say that these guys are, you know, irreparably harmed by not being able to play the PGA tour, which is hilarious. It, they're also incentivized to say that they have been, you know, essentially barred from joining the market of professional golf when, you know, publicly Greg Norman has been crowing about how they have, you know, all this market share clearly from the players that they've signed, they've become a serious competitor to the PGA tour. And then on the other side, the PGA tour is incentivized to make that argument that look how well live is doing. Look, look how much success, you know, they have become a legitimate competitor. That's essentially what the PGA mm-hmm. tour is arguing in court. So live success is getting in its own way in court in terms of these guys being able to still play the PGA tour. I mean, how much does live actually want to win this lawsuit? Do they do, like, how much do they care? Well, the, the big lawsuit, I think they obviously want to win the, the temporary restraining order. Again, this is where it's not going to be as big of a deal because the FedEx St. Jude championship is, is done in a matter of five days, right? Like this event will have come and gone. The FedEx Cup will continue. And then it'll be September and October when live golf events will take the stage again. There are a couple of interesting things that were kind of leaked, I guess, or confirmed um, during this court hearing. Yeah, let's talk about the what we learned that we hadn't. Then we'll rewind to the bigger filings because I know that we've both spent a lot more time reading court documents yeah. the last few days than than uh, in my recent memory. What did we <laughs> well, learn today? What slipped out? The uh, Elliot Peters, he's representing the PGA Tour. He said that these players have made more money in the last two months than they've ever made on the PGA Tour. All of that is to say that they signed big contracts. And mm-hmm. what I think is interesting is that like, we know that Phil and DJ and Bryson signed the mega contracts, but we don't know the extent of Taylor Gooch's contract. And he's had a successful career. Hudson Swafford's won multiple times on the PGA Tour. Uh, Matt Jones has had a long career on the PGA Tour. So if, they've, yeah. if these guys... Um, signed contracts for greater deals than they've ever made before. That's a lot of money. Um, the interesting thing about those contracts is they are currently confidential and they might not be forever. PGA tour is definitely going to argue that those contracts should be made public, uh, knowledge through the various court proceedings. Um, they have been redacted at this point and it was a moment of discussion at the beginning of this hearing. Um, and we're going to find out like very not necessarily soon but in in the coming months like if those contracts can become public which means yeah we will end up seeing like Taylor Gooch's what he signed on the dotted line for because i've heard rumors in, in the range for like Pat Perez getting 30 million dollars and Henrik Stenson rumored 50 million dollars where does Taylor Gooch rank is he in the 60 million dollar yeah. range um I think, I think that Stenson be got a little bit more once he once he got that Ryder Cup status that the, he could then ditch. Okay. Um, 
Uh, there was another thing. Basically, the <laughs> the attorney for the the plaintiffs, the live golfers, basically said uh, that, like, on the record, that their contracts or some of their contracts, the money that they have signed for gets paid out as they earn them in the live golf yeah. events. Now, this is a huge point of contention between live and essentially the media because uh, that, that was a rumor that has kind of spread around and it hasn't necessarily been reported and live golf immediately shut it down. And if the rumor is true, that would imply that like someone like a Charles Schwartzel signs a $30 million deal, the $4 million he wins in week one, cuts into that $30 million deal. <laughs> so if he's earned all yeah. this money up front, totally. he can't w- earn extra money on top of that. Liv has denied this. Brandel Chambly has tweeted out that it's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, this was an issue right after the first event. You know, I was in the room in Portland when that question was raised and Liv, uh, media rep there, went out of her way to say, look, no, to be clear those payments are in addition to contracts. But we also know that every contract looks a little bit different. And yeah, in order to get certain players, people have, like every player is coming from a different circumstance. Getting them to come over to live requires certain finagling for each person. So uh, yeah, some of those deals look different. I think something interesting to realize about these early deals also, which include guys like Gooch, who is probably the most surprising name on that first list besides dj they got a little extra something a little extra stick your neck out cash that would not be the case if say taylor gooch now wanted to join live like he got a little premium for going first which makes a lot of sense because you have so much risk built into being one of the first guys um but man it it went pretty quickly from taylor gooch saying that he just actually had intended to sign up for one live event to really becoming one of the faces of the resistance in the live versus PGA tour situation. Yeah. Don't, don't, do you feel a little implicated, not implicated, but uh, involved in the lawsuit is particularly with Taylor Gooch because you were the media member that got him to say on the record. Yeah. I was really only planning on playing one of these things. The PGA Tour thinks that that's exactly the opposite of what his intentions were. Yeah, I was the first one that he told it to. But then I think because of our interview, someone then followed up with it at the Open. So then I think he talked about it again there. Mm -hmm. Man, Sean, I got to say, reading through those court docs, just the cringiness of reading your own texts or WhatsApps or emails or any form of communication, even if it was the most you know, arbitrary, uncontroversial, anything. I I just, I have no interest. I have no interest in being in those docs. No. I don't want screenshots of my text messages. I think we should probably break down ultimately what are the really important things that seem to matter for the case, the bigger case at large, now that the hearing has taken place with the restraining order. Wait, at first, before we get there, are there any other little knick-knacky things that were kind of just like fun tidbits of, Wow, these things we wonder about on golf Twitter are suddenly entering the courtroom because I think I got I've got just a couple little ones. Like Go the, for it. These guys have to wear live gear, right? That will um <laughs> I I think that 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 live is probably going to address that. Essentially, in their uh, contracts, it was 
I guess, unearthed today. Something that was kind of rumored for a long time is that live golfers have to wear some sort of live gear. Now, this could be the Majestics patch on the side of Ian Poulter's shoulder. Um, this could be the literally the live golf branding that is on Patrick Reed's hat. I do believe that that is in their contracts. However, the live golf representative, the plaintiff's representative, he came out and he said, yeah, that's in the contracts, but that's for like the team golf stuff down the line. Like during the week of the FedEx cups, uh, events, these guys would not be wearing live golf gear. They would be wearing MasterCard, is is the example he he used. So, like I think that stuff's in the contracts, but it's not right now. It's for when these guys are locked into teams, locked into franchises, contracts signed to be a Majestics team member. That's when, yeah, you got to wear the gear. But right now, not the case. All right. Fair enough. So we're not quite there yet. Uh, there was some square groove discussion. Yeah, there were interesting precedents, legal precedents that were used uh, by each team. Um, there was a a rodeo precedent um, <laughs> from a number of years ago. There was a tennis uh, legality precedent, and then there was one about square grooves as well in the in the golf equipment world. Uh, there's a lot of reading I'm gonna have to get to with those things. If you guys want to play along and, and join the book club. You know, just ask me and I'll send you <laughs> links to those precedents. Uh, that's where you and I did not go to law school. We don't know how many things we have to read that are going to be argued by these lawyers. Um, what I found to be funny is the judge essentially found out late last week that she was going to be on the hook for this ruling today. Um, and the PGA tour found out in the middle of last week, holy cow, like this is coming and you gotta be, you gotta be quick with it. So the PGA tours representatives, essentially they spent like all weekend and into the night yeah. on Sunday night getting ready. And the judge had to do a ton of reading for this on the weekend. And it was a nice reminder that, Hey, golf writers are not the only people working on the weekend with this stuff. The actual judges and lawyers are working round the clock. Uh, because this was such a quick, quick thing. It was, there was a funny reminder of that at the end when they were trying to figure out scheduling and they were talking about, you know, figuring out the timeline of a potential motion to dismiss from the PGA Tours lawyers. And it's, it was a real reminder that, you know, from the outside, this stuff is so contentious and it, it's truly an us versus them thing. But for the lawyers, this is still like their place of work, their place of mm -hmm. business. And like, even the, the judge and like the opposing counsel, those are their colleagues. And so it's all, it's all much more cordial than I think it would be, you know, shown in a, uh, in like a courtroom drama on TV, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better comparison. Yeah. Well, the best word was at the end when the, the lawyers are being like very respectful and it's like, you know, thank you judge for your time. We really appreciate it. Sorry about the time schedule and everything. And um, she's like, no worries it's it's litigants like you that keep us here <laughs> yeah like, like that's why we're here yeah uh, and finally sean on that on that note did you learn anything from the hot mic situation during the 15 minute recess i don't think we learned anything i think it was a little bit unclear all we knew was that one of the things that was probably mistakenly shared was the fact that the money that players sign on to might be you know, it might be in their pocket, but it might they might have to earn money in tournaments against that amount of money that's in their pocket. 
And so again, yeah. that's, that's something that Brandel Chambly had tweeted about. So during the hot mic moment, um, the legal team from the plaintiffs were definitely discussing this and definitely discussed Brandel's tweet. And yeah, that's kind of where it was left because then they quickly turned the mic off. All right. Do you want to talk about the, the case more broadly, the filings that you've poured over? Uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, I just want to make sure that people who listen to this are aware of what actually matters because Look, Dylan and I are not lawyers, but we have a clue of the PGA Tour structure, the things that you can poke holes through, its non-tax status, it's all these things we have a clue on. And so when we see these things pop up in the documents and are like extremely highlighted, bolded, yeah, we kind of have a clue of where this thing is going. What matters the absolute most is the PGA Tour's media rights how they structure their, their business off of. If, if there are 250 card-carrying PGA Tour members, all of those guys sign on for annual ag- agreements that their media rights will be pooled together and used to earn sponsorships, uh, advertising value, all these various things to go into the purses that they play for. There's a reason why the purse of the FedEx Cup is so valuable because FedEx has given a bunch of money to this pool of media rights because FedEx gets said constantly during the broadcast all season long and particularly at the end of the season. So media rights are what are at is what is like really being discussed here. And sometimes pesky, Sean, today at the Boeing Classic, I could not film a video on the driving (laughs) range because that is all lumped in together too. It's Mm -hmm. all part of the same deal. So the reason that that's an issue is because, well, players like Phil Mickelson wants to, he wants to own his own media rights. He discussed this in January. He's discussed it in the past. It's not a completely realistic expectation um, for one player to kind of just own the media rights. Uh, Can they own it in like at the exact same time contemporaneously as the PGA Tour would own it? That would probably be an argument that Phil would want to make. But anyways, like the PGA Tour's media rights are devalued, they think, when players leave their tour and go play another tour or another golf event, particularly one on television, during the exact same time as a tour event. Now, there are 47 tour events in the upcoming schedule. That just means that 47 or basically 42 to to 43 weeks of the year PJ Tour's got some action going on. So if you're going to play somewhere else, you need to have a signed release approved by the PJ Tour, its executive staff, Jay Monahan. And so that's what we are here for. Like all these signed uh, or all these releases these guys did not get for the live events are the reasons they are suspended, the reasons they were put on probation, the reasons the PJ Tour it feels like its media rights have been devalued. Um, and so defining what those media rights are, defining why media rights are its core business, and defining why keeping players from leaving their tour to play other tours during a week in which they have an event is competitive and not anti-competitive is the entire crux, essentially, of of this lawsuit. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. All right. Good. Glad we've established <laughs> that. Um Sean, I just want to take a quick break to tell you about custom golf clubs. 
Look, we tell our friends about them all the time because they ask, look, where's the best place I can buy custom clubs? For us, the answer is easy because only one place offers the lowest prices on custom-built clubs, and that is fairwayjockey.com. Do your homework. See for yourself. No one beats their prices. You'll save up to 15%, and when you're talking about a big-ticket purchase like golf clubs, 15% can mean some pretty big savings. So head to fairwayjockey.com today. Build your custom set. A couple other points that I want to make. Now, I, I made this in an article that I wrote last week, but for the people listening who have wanted to see more out of someone like Jay Monahan, who have wanted to see him make a bigger stand, like he kind of peacocked during the Players' Championship, what we are learning a lot about now is just the timeline of events and the timeline of memos that were sent out and like essentially implying when the PGA Tour thought that it was going to be in a bit of a turf battle. Like Jay Monahan has not been going crazy with the quotes because mm-hmm. all quotes yeah. matter, man. Everything matters. I was talking to Joel Damon just the other day because quotes that he said to the media a long time ago. He was in there. Yeah. Popped up in the lawsuit. Quotes that Rory yeah. has said in 2019 are in the lawsuit. You can say the same for a lot of other players on the PGA Tour, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth. All quotes matter. They matter so much that when Davis Love opened his mouth on Tuesday of last week, discussed a boycott of a future you know, theoretical event, that quote was in Wednesday's lawsuit. So anything that tour players say right now... <laughs> It's not canon will be used against them, but canon will be used in this lawsuit. Um, and essentially that could be, you know, against them. It could be tricky times for us to continue to reporting on this stuff. Um, the PGA Tour has encouraged players to continue to speak up on this topic. I don't know if that's the positive move that they should be making, but maybe they'll get a groundswell of momentum and it'll be something that, you know, really helps win them this battle. All quotes matter. Um, from all players involved. And honestly, reporting matters too. So you and I have to make sure we are just as good as we've ever been. And emails, Sean. You could you could send an email to uh, to a live representative and it could wind up in that lawsuit as it did. James Corrigan yeah. from The Telegraph, who just broke some news today or you know, reporting that Cameron Smith has accepted a $100 million deal with Liv. He was in that lawsuit, kind of giving Liv a heads up that <laughs> uh, Fred Ridley was telling players not to join Live at the Masters last year. So there's there's a lot of ways that your words could end up in the official record. Totally. Um, that's one thing that we pointed out uh, on golf.com a couple different times. Augusta National and its chairman are included in the lawsuit. Um, who knows if Augusta National will ever say anything about this until April of next year. They very famously do not like to comment on issues regarding any type of club business. Um, I think sometimes they've maybe felt forced into doing it. This could be one of those moments, but um, that remains to be seen. All that we know is that it is alleged that Fred Ridley was helping out the PJ Tours cause. When I said like all quotes matter, also what matters a lot, I think in the ultimate like end game of this lawsuit is how much the PGA Tour was doing to compete with other leagues, how it was trying to make sure its players were paid 
at the same level uh, in terms of salary increases or theoretical salary inc- increases that the NFL, MLB, NHL, and N- NBA have seen. That's all included in this lawsuit. It is cited that Brooks Kepka, uh, who was the best player uh, in the PGA Tour in 2019, he was the leading money winner with just under $10 million. That's the equivalent of the 129th highest paid NFL player, the 121st highest paid NBA player, and the 128th highest paid MLB player. Does that matter? Does the PJ Tour payment structure work? These are all things that Live Golf is going to argue for when it decides that, uh, or at least these plaintiffs will argue for when it, they tr- decide that, hey, we were going to seek out better trade. We were going to seek out uh, a greater market for our services as golfers. We found one because of all these things that the PGA Tour has either uh, done anemically or not done, done incorrectly. Like the PGA Tour's performance will matter. The ratings that the PGA Tour has earned, what it has done with the broadcast, all these things will matter when this lawsuit eventually gets to a court trial. The important part about that is like preliminary schedule for this actual going to trial is a long time from now, Dylan, a really long time from now. How long? Uh, I think September of 23. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long time. So does this mean that no live players will be playing in PGA Tour events between now and then? Is that what today's hearing essentially ruled? Yes. Now, I believe it also allows for like a preliminary injunction, like... There could be future days like today where there is a hearing in court when a plaintiff is, you know, another PGA Tour player. It could be Pat Perez. Like, it could be another string of tour players who didn't play the first Live London event. They have their own different suspension schedule. Those guys could go uh, in a different route because, frankly, some of them would have qualified for the FedEx Cup, too. It's it's very interesting. Today, Carlos Ortiz, it was reported that he pulled himself out of the lawsuit. So now it's 10 live golfers. Um, this thing's going to change over time. I don't know if there will be something to report on it every single week. There could be some real stagnation with the, the court filings. A lot of it's just going to be um, filed online, is what I would guess. But, you know, these things are always going to be slow. One thing the judge said is like, hey... We're already scheduling court hearings for 2025. No one's thinking about 2025. I don't even think we know when like the Women's Open will be in 2025 or where it will be. Like that's so far off in the distance, but that is where some of these courts, because of the backlog with COVID and everything, they're already planning. And so these things, they really drag out and they get scheduled extremely late uh, in the calendar just because there's a lot going on in the world of antitrust. God, it's so crazy. People are just litigating left and right, Sean. And even though this one seems more relevant for our purposes, I don't know. God, all right. So in the meantime, there are a lot of implications, right? For uh, world ranking points, for major championship presence, and for guys that are thinking of leaving or have already agreed to leave but have not yet left, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, look at the schedule. We've got FedEx Cup this week, FedEx Cup next week, FedEx Cup after that. Then there's the end of the PGA Tour season. If anyone wants to make a jump, it would make a lot of sense doing it after you have earned a bunch of money. Then there's the Fed, uh, the President's Cup a couple weeks after that. If you are, say, a very talented Australian golfer guaranteed to be on the President's Cup team, 
Maybe you really want to do that. Maybe you feel like that will earn you a little bit of, I don't know, good fortune with the fans in Australia because you've represented Australia at the President's Cup. Then maybe you make your jump right after that. I think that's an extremely plausible scenario. Looking down the, the timeline even further, this is, but a, this is a precedent that will keep these live golfers from playing on the PGA Tour. Now, what will be really interesting is we look at the, let's say, the, the Tournament of Champions right? Next year's first event in Hawaii. That event is classically filled by players who have only won in the previous calendar year. I'm trying to think of who did that on the PGA Tour this year that has now moved over to Live Golf. Can you name any of them? Uh, off the top of my head, who has been? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Cam Smith, right? Like he He has earned his way into the next year's Tournament of Champions, but maybe he Maybe makes the jump and then, you know, hey, Hideki Matsuyama also won last year. Hudson Swafford won the American Express. Like the list of players who have actually won their way into the Tournament of Champions, they might have their own separate injunction for that event. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it would be maybe even more plausible than what they tried to do with the FedEx Cup. Yeah. Let's talk about this Cam Smith thing really quick because with him, you have sort of a. Uh, I mean, someone that defies categorization compared to his, well, assuming he goes, which based off today's report and his non-answer, you know, that, that seems fairly likely. If he were to go, he just won the Open. He's got exemptions. He's got world ranking points. He won the that players. Are not going anywhere in a hurry. He is the PGA Tour Players Champion. He's the number, still the number two golfer in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a guy that's going to be up there for a while. He's got exemptions into all the majors for a while. You know, certain other live golfers are going to drop like stones in the world ranking. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Bryson and DJ who have won majors pretty recently, they're still going to be around for certain major championships. But Cam Smith is a bit of a game changer. And if all the reporting is correct, Corrigan is saying he would play in Boston the week after the FedEx Cup, which would put him before the President's Cup, which would then be a real challenge to the international team of the President's Cup, which is owned, Sean, by the PGA Tour. <laughs> what, a, what a mess this would be if Cam Smith shows up in Boston uh, and if he shows up with Mark Leishman, has, which has also been reported. Yeah, it is funny. If you think back to... When Live Golf really started to take shape, when there were the first um, reported names involved that could take the money, this was in early May of last year. This was before Phil won the PGA at Kiowa Island. Phil was the name. There was Bryson, DJ. Those were all well known. Justin Rose was actually included in it. Um, I think Ricky Fowler's name was included in it. But if I would have told you then, like, hey man, just fast forward. 16 months the most important puzzle piece to this all will be cameron smith you would be like what the hell has happened in this world um but when you think about it the guy is a contender for player of the year <laughs> if he yeah. wins two if he wins two fedex cup events who's gonna vote i mean i know a lot of people who will vote against him is voted on by the pga tour players but like he'll have had a very 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 compelling case uh and he won't win it because scotty scheffler will get the players vote 
but he is he is a gigantic puzzle piece and he did nothing today in his press conference to deny anything he said no comment yeah i mean first of all i I don't get why cameron smith got trotted out there today uh maybe he didn't quite know you don't know why the report was going to be coming out here but if the intention was to answer questions and stop further questions i don't think that's what happened i mean maybe the idea was like look now he can say yeah, i already talked about that and this was just him getting that process over with maybe the pga but- tour says all right dude if you're out of here why don't you get on top of the stage and tell people about it? Like there could be a good riddance clause in, in the idea of that press conference. Yeah. I mean, maybe they wanted him to go out there. What, one thing that he did do was have the, the press conference move to five fifteen PM local time, which is the latest uh, early week press conference I've ever heard of. Uh, sometimes Dustin Johnson or Xander will slide those in at 4 PM on like Wednesday afternoon when some media members have already left. But as a result, there just weren't that many reporters in there. Shane Ryan, who's a friend of the podcast, did kind of hold his feet to the fire, asked him several different specific questions about whether he would play the President's Cup, whether he would play in Boston. He said he was looking forward to playing the President's Cup. He said, with regards to Boston, I don't know, mate, I'm here to win the FedEx Cup, essentially. One of the organizers at Rich Harvest Farms, which is the Chicago area golf course, has now tweeted, what if Cam Smith wins the FedEx Cup and then comes here and wins the live event too? So he's clearly looking forward to that. A lot of moving pieces, Sean. I guess I'm I'm intrigued by whether you think a big single pawn like Cam Smith is a huge deal. It's obviously significant. I don't want to downplay the significance nor like the the stature of Camp Smith and I'm not not at all like disparaging what he's accomplished this year. I'm more just curious if you think like the institution of the PGA Tour is kind of the thing at play now or if there are a few individuals like Camp Smith who are at the peak of their powers that make a big difference. I think they're the best players in the world right now are playing the PGA Tour. They're not playing live golf. But suddenly, one of the greatest players on the planet this year would be considering playing on that tour, losing all rights to the PGA Tour. I think that's a huge deal. <laughs> like yeah. you've talked, you've talked to Xander, and we've all asked Patrick Cantlay, and at various points, Morikawa has said this same thing: if the best players play elsewhere, that's where I'm going to go. Justin Thomas has said it: I'm going to play where the best players play. We haven't seen the best players go anywhere. This would be the first example of that. Not necessarily would it mean that in this lawsuit, that's a big deal. It actually might undermine the case of the 11 plaintiffs that, hey, like there's anti-competition going on. No, there's actually great competition going on. Yeah. But it would it would probably shake a little bit of the core of the the top players in the world. Like... The, the actual number two guy, he could be number one by then. <laughs> he, if he wins a FedEx Cup event and finishes high, like he could be number one in the world. And that would be the greatest marketing tool that Liv would ever want. Yeah, I could, I could totally see it flipping some guys' mind. The other significant thing, and this is a little bit more in the nitty gritty, if Cam Smith jumps over, uh, what he does is bring something of an anchor to 
the live players who are trying to get more world ranking points. And the way they're going to try to do that is by playing international series events, which are Mm -hmm. still uh, sanctioned by the Asian tour. And look, these guys can all say, and Paul Casey was talking a little bit about this. uh, They can all say, look, we need some points. If we want to have any chance of playing majors, let's all go play the same event, say in Singapore. And Mm -hmm. the only problem with that, with that is that, their rankings are all dropping at the same time and the same rate. So the only way they can get more points is by playing against other people with good points. Good news. Cam Smith has a ton of points. He brings a lot of, uh, you know, literal world ranking weight to the table. Mm -hmm. So actually dragging this thing out longer, getting Cam Smith to play more events, have his uh, ranking stay high is an additional benefit to those other live players. So there's, in addition to capturing the news cycle, Liv does get a little win just in terms of like Cam Smith's stature from that perspective too, which I think is interesting. Sure. Uh, there's another piece of this all that like if, again, if this is your, <laughs> if, if this is the podcast you've gone to for all of the clarity, I would honestly just point you to the work that Dylan and I have already done on the website because that was a lot fresher in the moment um, than than. I guess what we're discussing now, but one of the biggest pieces of this all is has nothing to do with Camp Smith. <laughs> it has everything to do with like the the two years preceding this moment, in which the PJ Tour formed a strategic alliance with the DP World Tour. Um, Live Golf plaintiffs are alleging what is called a group boycott, and there's been a lot of evidence, I guess, to this point that uh, has been alleged and some of it, the PGA tour has shot down, but some of it has not been shot down um, yet in the initial like complaint and then response to the complaint. But basically the group boycott that they've alleged is that, Hey, the PGA tour saw this coming. Jay Monahan sent out a memo on January in January of 2020 and said, Hey, there could be bad blood <laughs> happening, you know, by a, a bad agent basically. And it was a perceived threat that was said to players and agents like, do not give this thing any life. That happened in a memo form in 2020, January. Now, over the next two years, a lot of quotes were had and there was a meeting in Malta between Keith Pelly, the CEO of the DP World Tour and representatives from what would become Live Golf. Jay Monahan was not there. Jay Monahan was not involved. But very interestingly, after that, there's a, a strategic alliance that was even bolstered. So what live golf plaintiffs are going to be arguing is that the PGA Tour saw this competition arising and they decided to get a band of brothers to act in the same way. And that band of brothers would be the DP World Tour, Fred Ridley and Augusta National, the RNA, Martin Slumbers. Mike Wan and the USGA, and then Seth Waugh and the PGA of America. That's a formidable bunch. That's six seats, I believe, out of seven on the OWGR board of directors. If argued well, that's a huge piece in the actual antitrust, restraint of trade, uh, anti-competitive practices, monopolistic practices. Getting a group together that has power in the game to boycott the structures that Live Golf wanted to bring to it. That's going to be a hard thing to argue, but um, if it if done well, I think it could really help out the plaintiffs. So if you're bored by that, that's okay. 
that's not going to get decided for months and months and months. Let's talk about Mirrorfield, Sean. <laughs> Pivot. You want to? You ready? Mm-hmm. Can I take you back a couple days to uh, to the final fading light of Sunday night at the AIG Women's British Open? Uh, can you tell me where you were and, and what all was going down? So the leader, Ashley Buhai, had just teed off on the 15th hole. And I, I told myself, I got up from the media center and I said, I'm going to go watch her finish. She's got a three-shot lead. I'm extremely interested in in her story. I had been asking people about her uh, and her husband and basically like what they are like uh, as humans. Uh, they're very beloved on tour. Uh, she's got this five-shot lead. Either she's going to crack and they're going to be emotional or she's going to win and they're going to be emotional. And so I headed out to find her husband, David Buhai, who caddies for Jong-un Lee six. He had already caddied that day and he got to catch up with her, his wife on the back nine. And really I caught up with him as she was puking on herself, making triple on the 15th. Um, and he couldn't stand it. He, he had a beer in hand, was trying to calm the nerves, literally had to walk away as his wife was making triple, walked 200 yards away, could not look back, eventually saw her tap in like over his shoulder, 200 yards away. And uh, I stuck with him for the next two hours, which meant he was doing some heavy breathing as she was making these gutty pars. Um, I was right by him when he had a camera stuck in his face for most of two hours, about 90 minutes. I was with him behind the 18th green during the entire four-hole playoff when people were shoving beers in his face and shoving beers <laughs> in his hands, and he continued to have beer after beer after beer. Um, <laughs> I nervous drinking. I mean, yeah, it, nervous it, drinking. It's a very real, like, real spot for that. Also, the kind of drinking that like you can't help it because you've already had four and the camera is still in your face and you want to look like you're not breaking down inside and people keep shoving beers in your hands. So um, it was quite the, the scene, I guess, behind the 18th. You had all of his caddy buddies. You had a number of Ashley's player friends like Madeline Sagstrom and Marina Alex, uh, Gabby Lopez. They were it was tense to, to see other players and caddies like get extremely nervous for this couple um, was kind of endearing because it reminds you that there are some really deep friendships out there and they want to see each other succeed. It might've been one of the top three majors I covered this year. That's pretty good. It suggests you've covered quite a few majors this year too. So shout yeah. out to you. Um, you played Muirfield today, correct? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about what Muirfield is like from your experience over the past week and then specifically as a player. Well, I wanted to see it in person and understand it a little bit better. The routing is wicked. There's two concentric, essentially concentric circles. The front nine goes on the outside of the, the circle and the back nine kind of loops on the inside. And that's just relevant because you had the wind in the same direction every single day. And so when you're in a circle and you're turning around the golf course, that wind is changing pretty significantly, um, or sometimes just slightly on every single hole. And I think that that is part of its brilliance. The course I played today was maybe the, the most fair golf course I've ever played. And what I liked about it is because I asked Mel Reed early in the week, like, so what do you think of this place? She had, I don't know, she was 36 holes in, 
she had just shot the round of the day, probably the best round that she's shot on the LPGA tour in months. And she said, it's just proper, man. This is just a proper golf course. Like it's so fair. You drive the ball. Well, you won't get st- stuck in a bad place. You hit good iron shots. You won't find yourself in an unfair place. And the tricky thing about major championships is like the modern game has forced it into a corner at these classic courses where you have to trick them up. Uh, And once you trick them up, it becomes borderline unfair. Like you had guys like Xander and Fitzpatrick at St. Andrews saying like, nah, man, like this isn't all that fair. Um, You didn't have a single ounce of that at the women's open because it was set up so extremely fair. And that's what I guess that's what I found today. I mean, the best greens I've ever putted on. Wow. The best greens you've ever putted on yeah. on a Lynx course. I mean, just just so pure, extremely tight, and obviously fast and been manicured by the RNA for the last three weeks. Um, but just in, in such, such, such good shape. That's fantastic stuff. Any other sights and sounds from the women's open that people should know about? probably the best part of my week was just seeing these little kids play uh, a little mini tournament at North Berwick. They've got a little kids course. I went over there to take some photos of the golf course, North Berwick. And I just happened upon like the cutest kids in the world um, looking like mini Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy. And I had never really been to a tournament like that. And it was so genuine. They were playing, uh, their playing fee was two pounds and they probably played like 27 or 36 holes just looping around this nine hole course and uh, felt like while the game is being dissected by money and greed and trouble and sexism and racism and all these bad things, that felt like a, a really, really genuine great corner of the golf world. Definitely a good week for golf, uh, at least over the weekend before we got to all this latest madness and uh, what it reminds us of. But Sean, I think that's that's a pretty good place for us to leave it. Um, I'm coming back over. I'm coming your way. Sean and I have a little adventure planned. We will tell you more about that in a future podcast. Um, Sean, anything else? That's all. Apologies if we sounded circuitous with our route through that lawsuit, but uh, it was fresh. It's now one in the morning here, St. Andrew's time. Um, there'll be greater interpretations of the hearing today. Um, but we've done plenty of work on that on golf.com. So if you want to know more about the lawsuit, we've got that for you. That's right. We're a little more precise with the written word than the spoken word, maybe on this, uh, in our immediate reaction podcast, but thanks for listening. We will see you. We'll we'll probably see you later. Uh, We'll probably see you early next week. Excuse me, but maybe we'll see you later this week. You never know. Uh, this has been the drop zone. I'm Dylan. He's Sean. The guy you can't hear is Connor putting it all together. See you next week.